You may be seated. <laughs> Grace, mercy, and peace be yours this fine evening from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Tonight, we take a look at the villain, mysterious Judas. Judas Iscariot occupies the most unique place in history. Have you noticed that nowadays parents will name their children just about anything except Judas? Judas Iscariot. Little is known about him outside of what we see in the Bible. At one point, Jesus called him Judas, son of Simon, so I guess his dad is Simon Iscariot. But what is that? Ish is the Hebrew word for man. Some think that perhaps it simply means man from Kerioth. Only problem, none of the historians know where this Kerioth may have been. Perhaps Samaria. A better explanation is from the Latin word sicarius. It means assassin or murderer. But there was a group called the Sicarii. They were radical terrorists. It was a sect of, well, anti-Roman Jews. They killed their enemies by mixing with them in the crowd, doing their stabbing, and then slipping away, kind of like you read about the Soviets doing. The Sicarii. Whatever it was, we also know that the other disciples had passed, so perhaps that may not mean much, because Jesus called his disciples to serve him. And Judas, Judas was one of the twelve. In fact, he was one of the leaders of the twelve, somewhat of an inner circle. He was the treasurer. I guess that makes him an officer of the apostles. Kind of raises the question though, doesn't it? Well, why not Matthew? I mean, Matthew was the tax collector. I mean, he was more the CPA, bookkeeper, accountant type. Why Judas? Perhaps Judas was called into discipleship first before Matthew. Or perhaps, as Jesus often does, he gave Judas the opportunity to prove himself. We might say, don't trust him. <laughs> Someone might say that about me or you, and yet our Lord Jesus trusts all of us. This is a good case in point. He will trust everyone to give us that opportunity to show him right. In Acts chapter 1, after Judas died, Peter gets up among the apostles and they're going to choose a replacement for him. Peter describes Judas this way. He says, he shared in our ministry. He shared in our ministry. Yeah, if you think back, Early in the disciples' training, when Jesus took his disciples and he sent them out two by two into the different towns, communities around him, and he gave them the authority to cast out demons, to heal sickness and diseases, and to preach and proclaim the gospel, Judas was one of those. Judas cast out demons, healed the sick, proclaimed the gospel, and probably saw people Come to the Lord and salvation through the saving blood of Jesus. Judas was one of those disciples. And then as we read in Luke chapter 22, Judas makes his decision. He bargains and he closes the deal. Even wants to be paid for this. And yet, a little while later, Jesus is sitting, or Judas is sitting at the table at the Passover with Jesus. 
When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and everybody is saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? There must have been a noisy buzz of everybody talking and looking at each other because the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke to Judas and said, yes, it is you. Go do quickly what you must do. And yet none of the other disciples picked up on it in all of the buzz. Judas leaves. And of course, we know the next scene, Gethsemane, when Judas comes leading this armed band, Bible describes them as soldiers and Jewish leaders, the armed band comes up to Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. As has been said, a kiss should say, I love you. Well, we know the rest of the story as well, too. At the end of all of the proceedings, Jesus is declared guilty and let out to be crucified. Judas is hit by a severe remorse. Matthew tells us he was seized with remorse. Now, that's an interesting word, remorse. Judas was seized with remorse. Uh, I'm not used to using screens, so I put a few things together. Basically, it went online and copied some things from the dictionary. But kind of the definition of remorse, as you can see, kind of this gnawing distress, uh, horrible feeling, everything centers around guilt. And I probably don't have to tell you the devastating damage that guilt can do. It just sits there, it lingers, it gnaws, it plays itself over and over again. And of course, even when we've taken it to the Lord and received forgiveness, the devil always wants to bring that guilt back. He wants to lay it right back at our doorstep. And, you know, if you've been through that, you know, sometimes you have to just keep praying. You have to keep taking it back to the foot of the cross. You know, sometimes we'll say, well, it's already been forgiven, but I'm still struggling with it. And so I'm still praying and I'm still taking it to the cross and receiving the assurance of forgiveness. But that guilt, that guilt can just eat us up. And we saw what it did to Judas. Judas sunk into that spiral of deep remorse and guilt, downward and downward, until he hung himself. See, the problem with remorse, remorse offers no relief, no healing. And God doesn't promise to forgive remorse. Last week we looked at Peter, now we're looking at Judas. Peter too denied Jesus. Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. But after that, he was back with the disciples. Easter morning he was with him. He ran out to see the empty tomb. What a contrast. Judas, Peter. But I think that gives us a really good picture of some key concepts. Remorse, Repentance. We've kind of talked about remorse. Remorse has nothing to offer. Now, remorse, I suppose, can be good. You know, courtrooms always look for some sort of remorse in a person. And that remorse can be really, really deep, sometimes really heartfelt, but that's what it is simply sorrow, regret over something that took place. Yeah, I went to the dictionary to look up another word because this is what we're really interested in. But even that word, repent, you know, in the dictionary, it kind of focuses on the turning around. And then it says to dedicate oneself to the amendment 
of one's life. Or that you turn around and you want to do what's right. Now, maybe you've heard this in some sermons. Sometimes we even focus on that New Testament word metanoia, which is repent. And we describe it this way as you're going in one direction, you stop, you turn, you go the other direction. You know, we preachers will sometimes walk that one through out in front. But you know, that still comes up a little bit short too because it seems to focus on our efforts. That's why I pointed out that hymn that we just sang, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, but so often in there it kind of keeps reminding us that good works, you know, the things that we do, do not atone. They can't do anything to save us. But see, it's not just repentance, according to Webster's Dictionary. What we're really interested in is repentance, according to the Bible. That's a little bit different. Repentance. Repentance is, yeah, it's sorrow for sin. It's turning around us, going in the other direction, except that repentance, first and foremost, starts with the grace of God. True biblical repentance is grace-filled. It's Holy Spirit-filled. It's God's guidance. Remember I said God doesn't forgive remorse, but he does forgive repentance. Repentance is when God fills us. God gives us the opportunity to look right into our sins and see them for what they are and also see them for what they are against him. Do you remember Psalm 51? That's a psalm where we, you get that created me a clean heart, oh God. Great stuff in that psalm. But in Psalm 51, we also find these verses, verses 3 and 4, where King David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And then he says, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in my sight. You know, sometimes we, we sort of like to poo-poo our sins. We say, well, that was just between me and him, or me and her, or that was just us. It doesn't involve anybody else. <laughs> King David saw it clear. He says, no. Anything that's between us involves my God. He's the one that gave the commands. He's the one that I'm ultimately accountable to. And David says, against you, you only have I sinned. We know that he sinned against others too, but he saw the key offense was him and his God. You only. Psalm 32, a great penitential psalm there too. We said part of it early. Then I acknowledged my sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave, one translation says, the guilt of my sin. I've always loved that verse because of how it reminds us that God doesn't just forgive the sin. He forgives and cleanses the guilt because he knows what guilt can do to us. And so when God forgives, we're talking about complete cleansing. There's a really interesting verse that has long sort of fascinated me in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 11. Okay, let me give you the setting. Uh, this is before we get into St. Paul. Peter, the first part of Acts is about Peter. Peter has this vision about unclean animals and stuff. God teaches him a lesson and then receives a call to go from, you know, Joppa up to Caesarea, just, you know, up the coast, to visit a centurion by the name of Cornelius. Roman centurion, godly man, man of prayer, man of scripture, man of discipleship. 
And so he sends for Peter. Peter comes. Now we keep in mind that the Jews, even though they're, now they're Christians, this is the era of the Christian church. The Jews are not supposed to mix with Gentiles, not supposed to go into the house, shake hands, really have anything to do with them. And the Christian Jews are still trying to live according to their Jewish laws and Jewish heritage. Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, goes inside, proclaims the gospel, shares with them. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. They're all baptized. God is showing Peter that no one is better than the other. Well, word gets back to Jerusalem to the leaders that Peter and a few of the apostles were in the house of a Gentile. So they go back to Jerusalem to try to settle this because you know what happens when rumors get started and thrown around. So Peter and the apostles go back to Jerusalem and they meet with the rest of the apostles and the rest of the leaders and they tell them the marvelous things that God did and how we brought all of these Gentiles to salvation. And then we find this, Acts 11, verse 18. This is the response of the rest of the Christian leaders who said, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Let me say that again. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Think for a minute. If, if you were writing that, how would you write it? Wouldn't you write it something different like, God has granted the Gentiles salvation in Jesus, forgiveness of sins. He's, but no, he says, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Think about that. Because this is God's gift of salvation. God has gifting to them his precious gift of repentance. Without God's grace, without the Holy Spirit's power, we are really unable to truly repent of our sins and turn towards him. That's what repentance does. Repentance is spirit-led. It helps us repent, look at our sins, see them for what they are, see ourselves for what we are, and then receive that free grace and forgiveness of God. And when God forgives, it's cleansed. It's gone. That's why he calls it repentance unto life. Repentance. Think about that. Repentance is God's gift. Normally we think of repentance as preceding God's gift of salvation. No. It's a key part of it. God helps us to see our sin. God wants us to stare at him full on. Only so he can eliminate them, wipe them away. You know, there's one more word I want to bring up. It's another word for forgiveness, but we usually opt for forgiveness because the word absolution seems to be one of those more theological words. But in that word absolution, or the root word to absolve, is a beautiful picture of what God is doing to us. If you look at that, to absolve, to set someone free from an obligation to pardon, to forgive, because that's what Jesus does to us. We are totally absolved of our sins. And as we mentioned last week, you know, this, this forgiveness that we live in, it's not like being on a tightrope that you fall off. It's not being in grace, out of grace, in grace, out of grace, got to hurry up and confess before God catches me. No. My friends, you and I are in a covenant relationship with God. And in this relationship, in this relationship as God's redeemed and forgiven children, 
our sins are covered and forgiven. Now, the scriptures kind of encourage us and warns us, don't ever use that as an excuse to go off and deliberately sin. But it's just the way God works. He wants you to have the encouragement of knowing you are forgiven. Your sins are wiped away. You are God's child. And only in that sense, God says, now, follow me. The following doesn't earn anything. That's, that's our simply showing that we're his children. First and foremost, he wants us to know you're cleansed, you're absolved, you're forgiven, you're free. Covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, there's remorse, which is a spiral. Or there's repentance, which is a gift of God and leads to life. And it's what God wants, the complete forgiveness of our sins. That's why this repentance is such a beautiful gift. That's what Peter experienced. He denied Jesus three times when Jesus needed him the most. And he knew it. And he went out and wept bitterly. I can't even describe I don't think I've ever wept bitterly like Peter did that night. Maybe you haven't either. And yet he was forgiven and he knew that forgiveness. And, well, we read the book of Acts. He was a fearless missionary. That's what repentance does. That's what forgiveness does. That's what your God does in you. My friends, as dearly beloved, blood-bought children, may God continue to work his wonderful repentance, forgiveness, and power in your lives. Amen. And may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.